Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. U.S. climate envoy John Kerry has arrived in Beijing for bilateral climate talks. The Chinese economy has seen 5.5% GDP growth in the first half of this year. Algerian President Abdel Majid Tabon has kicked off his five-day state visit to China. The European Union's foreign policy chief says the EU's de-risking measures are not aimed at China, nor are they designed to hinder its development. You are listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate John Kerry has arrived in Beijing for a four-day visit. Kerry is the third high-level U.S. official to visit China in the span of a month. With the alarming backdrop of global warming and the recent record-breaking heat waves experienced worldwide, will the world's two largest economies make tangible progress towards taking actions? To delve into this pressing matter and more, let's now turn to Dr. Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations at East China Normal University. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We also have Professor Teng Jianchun, Director of the Diplomacy Studies Center at Hunan Normal University. Great to have you, Professor Teng. Me too, yeah, thank you. Professor Mahoney, let me begin with you. How significant is the bilateral cooperation on climate change between the United States and China, considering the scale of their economies and the global efforts to combat climate change? Well, you know, we all know uh, China is the largest uh, emitter uh, or producer of emissions at number one uh, globally, but the U.S. is the highest per capita mm -hmm. uh, and number two overall. Uh, furthermore, uh, a significant percentage of Chinese emissions are due to export production, and the highest percentage of that is for U.S. consumers, around 23%. In short, the U.S. has not only benefited from lower labor costs by manufacturing overseas, uh, America has also substantially offshored a lot of related pollution, not just uh, to China, but worldwide. And here we can uh, also think of the uh, maculadores in northern Mexico uh, producing uh, for the U.S. economy, uh, where the local environment has been ruined. Uh, but clearly, uh, you know, uh, what we are, are looking at uh, here is uh, the need uh, for these two countries to, to try to um, um, uh, hold consistent uh, their, their nascent attempts to restart or re-engage with uh, no new major disruptions uh, mm -hmm. that might once again derail uh, climate change cooperation. Um, and additionally, we, you know, we're, we can hope that uh, maybe they'll try to return to uh, some of the agreements that uh, were settled at COP26 uh, and advance those in meaningful ways. And, and uh, third, um, you know, most people are hopeful that they might uh, come to some sort of agreement about how they can work together at this year's COP28 so it won't be uh, ruined. So yes, these two countries working together absolutely necessary for any real significant uh, advance towards addressing the, the global problem of climate change. Mm -hmm. Professor Tong, what's your perspective on the significance of the bilateral cooperation on climate change between China and the United States? You know, this is actually a common challenge, not only for the United States, for China, but mm -hmm. all, for all the countries in the world. And actually, uh, in history, the two countries did have some good cooperations in this regard. For example, uh, the uh, establishment of the Paris uh, Accord. Actually, uh, China and uh, the United States uh, contributed greatly to such uh, agreement to deal with the uh, challenges from climate change. But in recent years, as we have witnessed, just because of the political and diplomatic uh, relations, you know, uh, have not been on uh, stable and uh, good uh, condition. So uh, the cooperation in this area, in this regard, uh, actually has been suspended. But this time, uh, John Kerry's visit will uh, give more driving forces to mm -hmm. the cooperation uh, in dealing with the climate change uh, together. I mean, uh, China and the uh, United States can cooperate in this area because uh, these two major powers should play 
uh, a very important role, a leading role in this regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, in case of that, Professor Tan, what potential mm-hmm. areas of cooperation will be focused on and what specific strategies or initiatives uh, could be explored between the two nations in the months to come? Uh, actually, there are several areas for the two countries to enhance the cooperation in this area. For example, uh, the uh, two countries can sit down and uh, find some common ground to uh, do something, uh, you know, related to the, uh, you know, uh, the articles uh, uh, according to the Paris Accord. So I think uh, at this level, the two countries can do something. Of course, I think the most important uh, role for the two countries to play is to be a leading, you know, uh, mm-hmm. part uh, for the uh, complementation or implementation of the, you know, agreement. So I think. Uh, actually, at different levels, the two countries can play uh, some different roles in the dealing with the, uh, climate change. Mm-hmm. Professor Mahoney, how do you foresee the potential areas of cooperation between the two nations in the uh, days to come? Well, you know, again, I think we're all happy that they're talking mm-hmm. uh, and, and indeed advancing uh, once again. Uh, this narrative of cooperation on climate change. And again, uh, there's some optimism that they might return to some of the agreements that they came to in, in, at COP26 and, and hopefully try to um, agree to some sort of platform that they can advance together at COP28. But, you know, if we talk about potential, there's there's all, many, many different areas where they could cooperate. Uh, you know, China is the, the world leader now in, in green tech and green innovation and trying to uh, uh, bring that more into global development uh, through projects like the Belt Road Initiative and others. You know, and so if the U.S. could uh, uh, be more uh, embracing of that, uh, more supportive of that, and not trying to hamper those efforts while also curtailing China's tech development, you know, which, you know, green tech also needs chips and access to, to um, that type of production, um, then we could start talking about how these two countries could work together mm-hmm. uh, and leverage their respective strengths uh, for the greater global good. Professor Mahoney, you mentioned the importance of a positive outcome or outcomes emerging from Kerry's trip, even if it means simply agreeing to continue discussion. But what impact could such outcomes have on future China-U.S. relations? You know, I think there's still reasonable concerns that the U.S. is not sincere about fighting uh, global warming and not sincere about cooperating with China in meaningful ways at all. Uh, There are also concerns that U.S. policy may shift to an anti-climate position altogether if Biden is not reelected. So, you know, this meeting might be a a window of opportunity for cooperation, and we hope Mm -hmm. that it is, but it also might just be uh, window dressing for Washington's claims that it's being responsible in international affairs, including responsibly uh, managing its relationship with China, uh, or it might be part of an even darker strategy. Who knows? That said, you know, we have to encourage these talks and then hope real positive outcomes uh, follow them. Mm-hmm. Professor Tong, what's your take? What impact could Kerry's trip have on future China-U.S. relations? Uh, of course, this is a continuation for the two countries uh, to do more and more exchanges between the two sides. For example, uh, the frequent visit of senior officials and high-ranking officials will give some uh, positive impact on the uh, stability between the two countries. We have witnessed the ups and downs uh, in recent years just because of the so-called strategic uh, competition initiated by the United States. Actually, uh, the United States has already taken China as a competitor or adversary at some uh, point. So I think... Uh, This time, after at least uh, five years of uh, so-called strategic competition, I'm sure uh, the two sides both have learned some lessons from uh, such a competition. That is to say, uh, decoupling or uh, Mm de-risking between the two countries can not uh, uh, do any good thing for the two sides. So I think at this moment, the two countries returned uh, to the negotiation, to the engagement, I'm sure uh, that might be a continuation for the recovering of the relations to a normal track. Mm-hmm.
Mm-hmm. Professor Tong, Professor Mahoney earlier mentioned concerns about U.S. sincerity. Contrary to Kerry's cooperative tone, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said China should be pressured to take significant and substantial action in reducing emissions and fight climate change. So before we delve into the meaning of his remarks, first of all, could you please help us understand when talking about take significant and substantial actions in reducing emissions and fight climate change, how's China been doing in global scale? Uh, first, I should say the United States should, you know, uh, continue its, uh, continue its uh, efforts in dealing with the climate change, but it's not easy because at this moment the domestic policy and the foreign policy in the United States actually have been hijacked by some uh, specific groups of interests at this moment. For example, mm-hmm. uh, they cannot uh, uh, go any further in uh, reducing the uh, use of coal or the uh, in a heavy industry, the, 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 some other you know, sectors cannot give any compromise in this regard. So uh, this is not uh, the uh, issue by the U.S. government, but uh, by some uh, specific uh, groups of interest. As for China, I'm sure China will continue its uh, role in, you know, uh, fighting against uh, the climate change, including the reducing uh, of emission and also increase its uh, uh, specific budget for such a uh, you know, program. So I think at this time, uh, everybody, every country are now looking at the United States. How can uh, that country you know, can go further and to uh, do something to good to the uh, international community? Mm-hmm. Professor Mahoney, what's your assessment on China's efforts on emission reduction and fighting climate change? Well, you know, I, I think one of the things we have to point out is that uh, Jake Sullivan has never met an anti-China talking point that he didn't like, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of its veracity. Uh, the fact is, China is the world's leading producer, the world's leading developing country, the world leading at, uh, leader at helping other countries develop, and the world leader in green innovation and green development. Now, if Jake Sullivan could say any of the same for the U.S., then the world would be a much better place. Second. There are some who think that there are those in the Biden administration, perhaps Kerry and Treasury Secretary uh, Janet Yellen, who perhaps prefer more cooperation with China, while others, like Sullivan, are more confrontational. Now, some believe this explains the one-step, two-step, a uh, one-step forward, two-step backwards approach that we're that we're seeing, uh, uh, as uh, some imagine the, the the administration is fighting over its China policy. Uh, others suggest that uh, that the U.S. is reaching sort of a new normal of finding where the two sides uh, will compete and cooperate. Now, both of these uh, perspectives are are possible, but for the meantime, I'm a bit more pessimistic. I, I think mm-hmm. it's prudent to consider that Biden's China policies are not schizoid, but are generally consistent and still trending negative, despite the recent and ongoing meetings. Uh, More fundamentally, again, I think we have to take into consideration that Biden may or may not be a one-term president, uh, or that we might or might not see a significant shift in policy again in less than two years. And on this point, imagine if Trump is reelected and he again withdraws the U.S. from the Paris Agreement. Where would cooperation be then? Mm-hmm. Professor Mahoney, could you please elaborate more on the underlying reasons behind Sullivan's remarks? Well, you know, we have seen this uh, approach. Uh, whenever there's a, a major meeting getting ready to take place, we see some sort of uh, negative messaging coming out of the White House. Or as we saw uh, after Blinken came, uh, we and we all had a very optimistic uh, uh, regard for the, his meeting in Beijing. And then uh, Biden immediately said some nasty things that really called into question uh, whether or not the U.S. was was really ready to move in a positive direction or whether or not the relationship had, in fact, reached its nadir. Um, we, we have seen um, um, this, this sort of double messaging and double approach taking place. Now, whether or not this is, again, trending in one direction, uh, one negative direction as a strategy, which, which I fear that it is, or whether or not this is rhetoric that's trying to cover uh, some sort of attempt to 
uh, manage. See, see the, main, the main problem here is that the, the U.S. Uh, or the China-U.S. relationship has become so politicized in the U.S. itself, and the U.S. itself is so polarized mm-hmm. with both parties fighting over who can be more anti-China. So anytime uh, Biden makes any sort of positive move towards China, he gets attacked um, by uh, the Republicans and certainly uh, the conservatives. And this was, we saw these vicious attacks against Blinken when he came and against Yellen when she came. Uh, so, you know, I don't know if this is Sullivan trying to message negatively to cover um, uh, Kerry's flank or whether it's just this, this two-step approach. Uh, either is possible. Mm-hmm. Then back on the fighting climate change, as Professor Teng, you mentioned earlier, um, many want the United States to take a bigger role in climate change and ensure sustainability in its policy. Uh, we know as the COP28 approaches, what role does the world expect U.S. to play in promoting global climate action and demonstrating leadership in addressing climate issues, as this will be one of the priorities on Kerry's agenda, according to his team? Yeah, of course, this is a very important part for U.S. diplomacy or foreign policy uh, in Biden administration. Uh, and uh, I'm sure uh, President Biden can do something, for example, to uh, be more and more active in this regard and to take uh, more and more you know, uh, specific uh, uh, steps to, uh, you know, uh, come from uh, to, to have some, uh, you know, uh, effort in dealing with the climate change. So I think uh, at this moment, the U.S. policy toward uh, climate change actually is something like a corn with two sides. On one side, of course, some specific uh, uh, you know, groups of interests would like to, uh, you know, go by their own way, but, but, but the government can, you know, uh, do something because the decision maker of the country is the government. So I think uh, in dealing with the climate change, the Biden administration can go, you know, more further and to be more and more active in this regard. This is actually a, a common issue for the United States and for the whole international community. Mm-hmm. Professor Mahoney, what's your take? What are the expectations based on your observation from a world community to the United States or to the Biden administration today? You know, it's a good question. Uh, one of the inconvenient truths associated with the Biden administration is that he's overseen a major expansion of oil drilling in Alaska, uh, consolidating America's new position as the biggest oil producer in the world. Now, other countries are moving faster to EVs, with China now the global leader, but the U.S. is still trying to expand oil production. This has left a lot of environmentalists confused and even angry with the Biden administration. You know, is it green and committed to green development, as he says, or is it moving more so in the opposite direction? Now, both China and the U.S. still have a lot of work to do to get greener. And clearly, China is making or taking very clear steps in that direction while still trying to complete its modernization and national rejuvenation. Uh, Increasingly, however, uh, this great power competition uh, promoted by Washington uh, not only uh, has directly undermined uh, things like cooperation for climate change, it has also made it harder for each country to bear the cost associated with going green. Now, this is the crux of the problem and the reason why realists are frustrated that mm-hmm. we're you know, already facing an existential crisis globally associated with climate change that necessitates both countries working hand in hand to help save themselves and everyone else, while the U.S. is still doing things like expanding oil production, pouring uh, nuclear weapons into Asia and building anti-China alliances and doing whatever it can to undermine China's tech development with obviously direct implications on China's green tech development and climate change cooperation. Mm -hmm. Professor Mahoney, speaking of that, we have witnessed in recent days a seemingly notable shift in China-U.S. relations marked by a series of significant engagements. Uh, Prominent figures from the United States, including top officials and influential business leaders like Bill Gates, Elon Musk, are actively engaging with China and venturing into China. This shift in dynamics is quite striking when we draw a comparison between the recent past and the present, especially during the February, the balloon drama. Uh, what do you make of the change? Or in your opinion, is there a fundamental change of this time? 
I think it's hard to tell. You know, one of the things that we've seen is a lot of business leaders coming to China because they have a lot of business interest here. They're clearly very invested in the Chinese economy and the Chinese market. They want greater access. And uh, they were prevented uh, in part by the COVID control policies. So, you know, we've seen this this big return of, of these major leaders um, uh, this year. Uh, some people have interpreted this as uh, business leaders signaling to Washington that uh, they're still uh, moving positively in China's direction, regardless of what uh, uh, Biden uh, or the Republicans uh, had in mind when it comes to, to China policy. Uh, maybe they're not taking a stronger uh, vocal stand uh, for fear of political backlash at home, but they are certainly uh, voting uh, with, with uh, uh, in terms of how they're they're coming to China and and showing support for their interest here. Um, but you know, there there is this possibility that you know we are seeing. Um, that intersect in some positive way with the commitment that was made uh, last year at the um, uh, G20 when uh, uh, Presidents uh, Biden and Xi uh, agreed to more high-level engagement, mm -hmm. um, uh, which was initiated with the Blinken visit and then followed by Yellen and now uh, Kerry um, uh, as, a, as an attempt to restart um, engagements that had been thwarted not only by uh, Trump's anti-China policy, but also Biden's anti-China policy, as well as the pandemic. So uh, there's this optimism, if we're being very optimistic, that this might be an opening for uh, some sort of structural uh, adjustment in ties that will allow us to uh, reach uh, a new understanding of each other and better manage the relationship. Um, but that's not yet clear that that all of this can be understood in that way. Mm -hmm. Professor Tong, what's your take? Uh, does the increased frequency of high-level exchanges suggest a, a renewed commitment from both sides to engage in constructive dialogue and address key areas of concerns like climate change? Or does the great shift of Washington's attitude towards China have other explanations? Yeah, I think this is a very crucial moment for the two countries to think about uh, the relationship between the two sides because uh, the United States at this moment cannot uh, you know, uh, defeat China. And of course, China has no such uh, willingness to uh, do some you know, competition with the United States. This is a you know, new situation the two countries are facing. And at uh, this moment, I'm sure uh, the frequent engagement between uh, the two countries will give some positive you know, impact on the uh, stable relations between the two sides. But I don't think some uh, specific groups of interest in the United States, for example, the congressmen, uh, can uh, change their mind toward China and they will continue uh, to make some troublesome you know, uh, steps toward China and uh, uh, the relations between the two countries will be a return to a normal track, but there are, there are still uh, some troubles we are facing now. So we should be very prepared. We should be very cautious on the development of uh, uh, relations between the two sides. Mm -hmm. Professor Mahoney, then looking ahead, how can United States and China ensure that distractions and external factors do not hinder the progress of their climate cooperation, for example, and the creation of favorable conditions for a more stable relationship? You know, generally we find uh, that uh, some countries uh, try to seek a unity position uh, within itself that, that reflects baseline values. Um, so, you know, we see this, for example, in some parliamentary systems where you have competing parties um, where they will form a unity government to, to address a crisis. Uh, that's not going to happen in the U.S. the way that the federal system works. But clearly what both sides need to uh, uh, work really hard at is avoiding new provocations and overreactions. Uh, they need to focus more on disciplining themselves and uh, 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 getting their own houses in order. I think China has done that uh, uh, very well over the last several years, uh, and, and not just in terms of uh, political discipline at home, but also um, um, advancing the green agenda. Uh, they need to uh, uh, do this instead of trying to discipline each other. Thank you very much, Professor Joseph Mahoney and Professor Tong Jianchun. Coming up, the Chinese economy has seen 5.5% GDP growth in the first half of this year. For more, you can follow us on Twitter, CGTN Radio. We'll be back after a short break.
Welcome back to Road Today with me, Ge Anna, in Beijing. China's gross domestic product has grown by 5.5 percent in the first half of this year. The spokesperson of National Bureau of Statistics, Fu Linghui, says the number indicates a good momentum of recovery in the national economy as market demand has gradually recovered, production supply continued to increase. Employment and price were generally stable, and incomes grew steadily. Industrial production rose 3.8 percent, while fixed asset investment increased at the same rate. Meanwhile, the total retail sales of consumer goods increased by 8.2 percent. In the second quarter, China's GDP grew by 6.3 percent, the fastest growth rate since the second quarter of 2021, and is in line with the previous prediction by the People's Bank of China. China has set an annual economic growth target of around 5 percent. So, for more on this and China's economic performance in the first half of this year, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Wang Dan, chief economist of Hang Seng Bank, China. So then, China's GDP expanded 5.5 percent in the first half of this year. The economy grew by 6.3 percent in quarter two, faster than the quarter one growth rate of 4.5 percent. So, what's your rating of the half-year economic figures, and how do you see the momentum? Uh, for the first half of year, we can see that every month the economic performance is better than the previous month. Uh, the consumption has held up relatively strongly,、uh, especially in the first quarter, and investment in housing stayed weak. But still,、uh, the shrinkage has been narrowed, and overall,、uh, the economic growth has been consistent with the market expectation. And there is a strong performance from the industrial sector, especially in the new energy sector, and that is the brightest spot in the economy.、Mm. And as you mentioned, the industrial output growth is faster than expected. So why is that, and what does it tell us about the economy? And the economy now has a very uneven recovery. And when we look at the industrial performance,、uh, most sectors has held up very well, especially the one in advanced equipment making,、uh, aeronautics, astronautics, new energy sector. And they have not only attracted the largest amount of capital inflow, but also the largest production. And we have seen that in the upstream of the new energy industry. The battery producers and material producers have all recorded stellar performance.、Um, we can see a clear transition actually in the industrial structure. China's economy is going greener and climbing up the global value chain, while the lower value-added industries are shrinking.、Uh, in the coming years, we can see that there is a deepening trend、uh, following the current economic performance. Mm. And on foreign trade front, China's foreign trade grew by 2.1 percent in the first half, and so data shows that demand from major developed countries is weak this year, and that will put pressure on China's exports. So, how will this global economic scenario or environment influence the Chinese economy and the trade at large? On China's export, although、uh, the growth has been declining since April, the overall level is still at historical high.、Uh, we can't forget that after COVID, every single month China's foreign trade is recording historical high level. Part of it was driven by the COVID-related industries, but mostly driven by the consumer demand in the developed market. Those markets has been issuing massive amounts of fiscal and monetary stimulus, which has boosted their consumer market. And this year, although we can see sort of the weakness in certain sectors in China's export,、um, for the green products to Europe. And consumer products to the U.S. they still record double-digit growth, especially the export to Europe. The solar panel, the wind turbine, all recorded quite healthy growth, and we can also see a higher investment related with those products.、Mm. And that is foreign trade and domestic consumption make over 70% of the contribution to the GDP growth in the first half of this year. So, can consumption become a major driver of economic recovery for the rest of the year? This year, consumption is for sure the number one driver for China's economy. 
Uh, it is, on the one hand, a very positive sign that China's economy is recovering very strongly in the consumer sector. Uh, we can see that in the first half, uh, the tourism, transportation, catering have all recorded a very high growth. Um, but on the other hand, the higher contribution from consumption also reflected a lower contribution from domestic investment. And there is still a relative weakness in the housing investment. Um, for real estate developers, they still have a big constraint in terms of the liquidity they can get and also housing sales. Um, for uh, consumption to resume, the current momentum is not difficult. What's more challenging for the economy is how to encourage more investment into uh, China's housing and manufacturing, and that will require more policy response. And some analysts say the central government may roll out more stimulus policies starting from the third quarter of this year to support the real economy. So then what's your assessment and what do you think about China's economic policy directions for the second half of this year? I believe the economic stimulus in the second half will be stronger than the first half. But I don't believe there is an incentive for excessive stimulus. There is not much difficulty for China to reach the 5% economic target. Just by a natural rebound in consumption and investment, China can already reach around 4.5% to 4.8%. And export-import, uh, although they both decline, but accounting-wise, import has been declining faster than export. So it still contributes it, um, positively to GDP growth. So I don't think reaching the 5% of the target is a problem. Now, there uh, is a lot of expectations for policy response, and there is a trade-off, clear trade-off, between short-term policy choice and long-term policy choice. And so far, economic security and the strengthening of the supply chain still take priority, and that means the short-term demand stimulus will be quite limited. I think it's necessary for China's long-term growth, but in the short term, uh, there will be a lot of challenges for corporates. Um, Premier Li Qiang recently met firms such as Alibaba's Cloud Unit and Meituan, this kind of uh, platform enterprises, and urged them to do more to support the economy. So what signal does he send? And what's your view on the digital economy's role as a driver in China's future growth? Uh, I think those companies were quite crucial in providing uh, high-quality jobs for fresh graduates in the past 10 years. And this year, uh, China's job market is particularly difficult, and those companies are able to actually take a bigger role in supporting the youth employment. And those companies can potentially expand their business and further their investment in things like artificial intelligence and other type of consumer-related technology. Mm. And also the yuan dollar rate decreased the 3.6% in the first half of this year then. So it's understandable as China didn't raise the interest rate as most developed economies has been doing in the past years. But the yuan dollar rate is now showing signs of stabilization recently. So what's your prediction for the exchange rate in the second half of this year? Uh, we believe the exchange rate between yuan and dollar will be more stable and yuan will get stronger throughout the second half of the year, especially in the last quarter. And the main reason for that is the appreciation of dollar has reached a stable point. Uh, no one anticipated the Federal Reserve to hike the interest rate as aggressive as before because its domestic inflation is under control. And for China, although there is a chance that the central bank may lower the interest rate another time, uh, or even twice, or even three times, depending on the macroeconomic situation, but as soon as the economic outlook improves, then it will bolster the valuation of yuan. So far, we have seen uh, more of a positive signal in the foreign exchange market. Um, the central bank hasn't really intervened since the start of this year, which has allowed a more volatility and bigger range for, uh, for RMB valuation. And that is also a positive sign. That was Wang Jian, chief economist of Hang Seng Bank, China.
Algerian president Abdelmajid Tabon has arrived in Beijing for a five-day state visit to China starting Monday. It's the Algerian leader's first visit to China since taking office. Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin emphasized the deepening political trust and fruitful cooperation between China and Algeria, especially within the Belt and Road Initiative framework. China and Algeria established a comprehensive strategic partnership in 2014, the first Arab nation to do so. So for more on the visit and China-Algeria relations, we are joined by Dr. He Wenping, Senior Research Fellow at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thanks for joining us, Dr. He. Thank you for having me. First of all, how would you describe the significance of Algerian President Tabong's visit to China, considering it is his first visit to China since taking office? Oh, yes. Uh, even this fact itself uh, already shows it's very uh, significant visit uh, from our junior president, uh, because it's the very first time uh, since he took the office. And also this year, uh, 2023, marks uh, the 65 years anniversary for our diplomatic ties establishment and also marks uh, the 30 years anniversary for Chinese medical team dispatched mm-hmm. to Argentina. Actually, that was the very first uh, medical Chinese medical team uh, to Africa because that is from the year sent to Argentina uh, in the year 1963. Uh, so that is a lot of uh, important anniversary. Uh, anyhow, and also because Argentina, uh, when we recall the year 1971, uh, we often talk about uh, uh, two, uh, you know, in Chinese we are saying liang a, which means Argentina and Albania. Mm-hmm. Uh, those two countries, because in Chinese pronunciation, all started from a. So that's why we in, even in my primary school, when I learned Chinese history, uh, it's mentioned clearly, saying the two, Albania and Argentina, they make the joint proposal saying to the resumption of Ch- People's Republic of China's uh, this legitimate seat mm-hmm. in the UN uh, this Security Council uh, in 1971. Eventually, it's been passed by General Assembly uh, in the UN. So this is a very uh, important historical moment uh, in Chinese, uh, this People's Republic, uh, our uh, history, uh, especially uh, with our relation with UN, and also, of course, set up a very sound and a firm foundation for our bilateral relationship between China and Argentina. Speaking of close friendship between China and Algeria, the two countries established a comprehensive strategic partnership back in 2014. How it has evolved over the years? Oh, yes. Uh, in, 19, in 2014, Argentina also became the very first Arabic country uh, to establish uh, this uh, comprehensive strategic partnership with China. So ever since that, and then our bilateral relations uh, has moved forward in a very, uh, you know, uh, stronger way and especially systematic way. For example, in the year 2022, and the China and Argentina government, we have signed uh, three very important cooperation documents, uh, namely at uh, China Argentina uh, Comprehensive Strategic Cooperation Five Year Plan, uh, guided us from 2022 all the way to 2026. And also, China Argentina uh, cooperated to build the One Belt, One Road, uh, this cooperation, uh, because Argentina joined. Uh, one Belt, One Road uh, signed this cooperation MOU in the year 2018. And also another document is uh, those, uh, uh, you know, very important area for uh, for China-Argentina cooperation in the coming three years. Uh, that is from 2022 to 2024. Uh, you see, all kinds of uh, this cooperation project, uh, this document already shows uh, that China-Argentina, uh, this uh, comprehensive strategic partnership that has covered mm-hmm. uh, this uh, systematic uh, this uh, kind of uh, uh, approach and also covering a lot of uh, important areas, infrastructure, like uh, uh, tourist development, uh, agricultural modernization, and the renewable energy, and even the space, uh, this uh, cooperation, uh, mm-hmm. like the digital economy, uh, car making, so on and so forth. Given their fruitful cooperation over the years, 
What are the expectations of both China and Algeria regarding President Tabong's visit this time? I think at this time visit uh, from Argentina uh, president, I think uh, would like to further deepen uh, our bilateral cooperation, uh, especially this is the post-pandemic time now. Uh, actually, during uh, maybe I can add some information. During the pandemic time, mm-hmm. uh, we have also done a lot of cooperation about uh, medical uh, material, uh, you know, supply to each other and the vaccine development. And even now, Chinese company now is helping Argentina, uh, their counterpart, to make the vaccine, uh, this producing capacity, uh, make uh, uh, making Argentina vaccine. Uh, that is, uh, you know, to improve the fishing uh, capacity, not only uh, give the fish. So those are the medical cooperation. This time around with this visit from uh, uh, President of Argentina, I think uh, now, number one, uh, mm-hmm. we need to further... Uh, think about in the future, uh, because now this is a 10 years uh, one but one road anniversary now, 2023. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just mentioned uh, we have signed some uh, cooperation as a guiding for the three years time uh, from 2022 to 2024. So now need to think about yeah, what is the future uh, cooperation area. Maybe we will sign uh, some other, those, uh, 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 you know, the cooperation agreement uh, for guiding in the future. And the plus, uh, this time, uh, now I think uh, uh, from our genius perspective, they also want to further uh, establish this strategic cooperation with China. For example, how to join, like, uh, uh, maybe join the BRIC, uh, this uh, mm-hmm. club, and also join, like, a Shanghai uh, Cooperation Organization. Now, now the, both SEO and, like, uh, uh, BRIC now getting uh, its momentum. Are becoming very attractive for all other uh, those uh, uh, potential big uh, those power. Argentina is the largest size uh, country in Africa. Uh, it's a territory, it's size and economic. Uh, this comprehensive power are uh, both ranking, uh, you know, among the top uh, in Africa. So it uh, has a great uh, this uh, you know determination to play the bigger role, not only in North Africa. Uh, in uh, Africa and also in the Middle East, uh, actually even among all the developing world, South-South cooperation, or even in the international state. So I think uh, nowadays, Argentina wants to yeah, further its relation with China, not only eyes on newer Chinese companies like to back to Argentina after this pandemic, uh, this, uh, this time, and also trying to cooperate with China um, uh, in a more strategic way. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of a possibility of Algeria's participation in more cooperation mechanisms with China and uh, the region and the world, the 2023 BRICS Leader Summit will be held in South Africa next month. And it has been reported that President Tabon expressed his desire to accelerate Algeria's progress of joining the BRICS cooperation mechanism. How do you view Algeria's aspiration to join the cooperation mechanism? Yes, uh, Algeria is a big country uh, in terms of the size, in terms of, of its uh, economic uh, this, uh, uh, you know, strength. And uh, also, uh, Algeria is, uh, you know, uh, has uh, three kinds of uh, identity. Uh, one is uh, a country in Africa, Another is a country in the Arabic world, and also a country around the Mediterranean Sea. So it's very close to Europe, and also a big country in the Arabic world, and also a very important country in Africa as well. So given the three kinds of identity, so Argentina, they have uh, this uh, desire trying mm-hmm. uh, to join the BRIC. I think it's very rational, uh, this uh, idea. And uh, uh, I think now the BRICS country also in the process of enlarging, expanding uh, its members. Uh, even uh, BRICS Bank already changed the name for the new development bank. They are not only limited with just the five members themselves. Mm-hmm. BRICS Club itself also, uh, similar like uh, Shang- Shanghai Cooperation Organization now uh, with uh, India, Pakistan joined, and then this year with uh, Iran also joined. It's in the process of our steadily expanding itself. So I think it's very likely uh, that uh, BRICS, uh, this group, 
also we are strategy uh, to getting more members uh, in this class. Mm-hmm. We look forward to witnessing the continued growth of the comprehensive strategic partnership between China and Algeria in the years to come. Thanks, Dr. He. That's Dr. He Wenping, Senior Research Fellow at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. You are listening to Road Today. The European Union High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, Joseph Borrell, has emphasized that EU's de-risking measures do not target China or aim to hinder its development. He made the remarks during a meeting with senior Chinese diplomat Wang Yi on the sidelines of the series of ASEAN Foreign Ministers meeting. Borrell also reiterated the EU's adherence to the One China policy and its willingness to maintain a strong engagement with China and develop a constructive, stable and long-term relationship. In response, Wang stressed that China is committed to building an open economy at a higher level and will continue to share its mega-market opportunities with the world. China supports the EU in pursuing strategic independence and making independent judgments. So to talk more about this, joining us on the line is Dr. Cui Hongjian, head of the European Studies Department at China Institute of International Studies. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Cui. Hi. Uh, when meeting with Borrell, Wang Yi said there's no fundamental conflict of interests between China and the EU, urged the EU to further clarify its positioning of the strategic partnership between the two sides. What exactly needs to be clarified, in your opinion? Why China felt that it is necessary? What Mr. Wang uh, mentioned, I think, is always the uh, uh, you know the position of Chinese government on its relations with the uh, European Union. Of course, I think that uh, what needed to be clarified by uh, European side is also, you know, firstly, how about the perceptions from the European side on China? Uh, especially recent years, also, you know, after uh, European Union, this uh, the so-called new definition about China and about its relations with China in a so-called multi-phase definition, including uh, partner competitor and also the uh, rival, I think it gives uh, uh, some uh, difference between two sides on this uh, mutual perception and, uh, of course, certainly on this, uh, you know, policy uh, with each other. Uh, now, I think the, uh, uh, for China, uh, what concerns uh, about the Europe is uh, European side needs to have a more clear position on its policy towards China, mm-hmm. especially now, as we know, there are more some uh, uh, you know, uh, divergences uh, among the member states of the European Union. Even some countries, uh, they are trying to challenge uh, some uh, co-issue in the bilateral relations like Taiwan or some other. Of course, uh, most of the member states of the European Union, they try to have some more uh, cooperative relations with China. So now I think that uh, for China uh, and the Europe, uh, now in a very, very critical stage, to have a more clear mutual perception and then the clear and also a stable uh, uh, policy position. Speaking of a clear and a stable policy position, recently de-risking and decoupling have been the trending words when it comes to China. Some felt that uh, from decoupling to de-risking is a good sign to soften the rhetoric, while others call de-risking as uh, decoupling with a European accent. How do you see uh, EU's attitude when it comes to de-risk and decouple? As we know now, uh, uh, for European Union, they are trying to get a balance between the different understanding about its relations with China from uh, member states. As we know, some countries uh, still try to have some more cooperation with China, but at the same time, uh, some countries perhaps they try to uh, follow up the uh, policy of the United States to have a kind of uh, decoupling relations with China, especially economically. So I think now, for China, uh, it's very necessary to ask the European side to make clear its uh, policy position between so-called uh, decoupling and also de-risking. Also, you know, uh, once they, there is a uh, de-risking is a uh, say no to any kind of decoupling policies or behaviors. Uh, but at the same time, maybe another kind of uh, uh, definition uh, is uh, 
the risking is just another type of uh, decoupling. But I think now for China, uh, need to help European side to make clear its uh, policy, uh, which means that the risking, uh, firstly, there will, should not be any uh, concrete target uh, against China. Uh, even there are some issue of the risking, I think uh, from China's perspective, it should be a common challenge because even for China, we do have a you know, issue of the risking, but it's not from Europe. It's uh, from the uh, you know huge change of uh, globalization or deglobalization uh, trend. So I think it's very necessary for China mm-hmm. to uh, have some more communication with the European side on this uh, issue. Speaking of change, we've witnessed a shift away in Germany from Merkel's pragmatic means towards China. The German government recently unveiled its comprehensive China strategy. So what's your assessment of the need of such a strategy? As EU's strongest economy, how will the new strategy define the bilateral relations going forward? I think this this, uh, uh, strategy on China from the German government Previously, it, uh, it's a kind of, um, uh, you know, the outcomes with the uh, polit- uh, political change uh, in uh, Germany. As we know now, there's a three-party coalition in Germany, mm-hmm. especially for this uh, new elected party like the Green Party and FDP. They try to uh, change the previous uh, uh, German policy towards China. So there is the uh, necessity of uh, changing uh, its policy. Uh, so I think another uh, maybe uh, concern from a uh, 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 German side is they think that the China they thought that China changed mm-hmm. and uh, they needed to uh, change the policy uh, as a, as a return. But I think that uh, uh, on this regard, uh, for especially for the uh, German policy towards China, the stability and the consistency would be a valuable part for this policy. So it's just a change for change itself. Uh, there is not a so uh, necessary and change for this uh, policy. Uh, this, uh, as we know, that uh, Germany uh, is the biggest uh, trading partner with China on the European side. So I think, yes, it will have some influence. But I believe that uh, most of the European countries, they will have their own interests with China and they have their own policy stance. Thank you, Dr. Zhu Hongjian, head of the European Studies Department at China Institute of International Studies. That's all the time for this edition of World Today with me, Anna. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.